First of all, I'm glad everybody could make it out on time today. It's going to be fun to see if anybody strolls in here in the next 20 minutes or so. So if they do, I'll be sure to point them out. I know. He, he walked in this morning. He's like, am I really early? And I'm like, no, actually, you're barely on time, but we'll take it. So it's a miracle. All right. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's our goal. We're looking at what God says on every subject, right? That's all we care about. Do we care what I say on every subject? Of course we do. I'm just kidding. No, it doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what my opinion is. It matters what God says. It doesn't matter what your opinion is on what God says. It matters what God says. And that is what we have begun to do, is what did God actually say? Not what do you think this means. We've been kind of tipping over some sacred cows, if you will, uh, over the last few weeks. Now, Matthew chapter 4 says this. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted for 40 days and nights, afterwards he was hungry. When the tempter came to him, he said, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And he answered, It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. His response was in Scripture. Okay? So this is a clue from Jesus of how we are to resist anything that the enemy brings against us. Not just temptations of hunger. Okay? But any temptation that comes, we respond scripturally. Fair enough? Is that, I mean, you guys followed me on that. It's not just that, oh, you know, I think God said or whatever. We don't ever want to be in the situation where we're encountering the enemy, if you will. And when they say, Paul I know, Jesus I know, but who are you? That's not where we want to be. We want to be one that, that at least is known because we stand on the authority of Scripture. Now, Jesus pulled this verse from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Verse 1, it says, every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe, that you may live and multiply, go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers, and you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but every man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. This is where we want to be. Where do we live by? We live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So in other words, no matter what is going on in the world around us, which is crazy, right? People out there have lost their minds. But here's the good news. They lost their minds years ago. It's just now we're realizing it. People are nuts. When you're confused on which bathroom to use, you got a problem. Just be honest, right? We are creating confusion and chaos and thus bringing upon ourselves destruction ultimately. So we have to have some sort of standard of which we apply to everything. And that standard is the Word of God. So we've been focused on the idea of healing. What is God's will? Is it God's will to heal everybody? Is it God's will to heal some? Is it God's will to heal none? We need to know. Because a part of the ministry that Jesus did was healing. And part of the ministry that the apostles did was healing. And according to Jesus, that we're going to do even more works than what he did because he was going to the Father. And there seems to be some emphasis on the idea of salvation and healing. And we began to break that down uh, piece by piece, looking at the atonement and all these different areas. We're not going to rehash that, but we are looking at these questions that often get brought up when you talk about healing and how we know that it's God's will and this, that, and the other thing that we just got to deal with. The first one is, why did Jesus leave people sick? The second is, is why didn't uh, Paul heal Timothy and Trophimus? And then what about Aphrodite? Did he get sick? He was sick. What do you do with it? 
If it's God's will that you not be sick but to be made whole, then why are people getting sick? And we began to look at these three specifically, and I brought you guys this idea, this anecdotal evidence fallacy, which simply means this. In place of a logical evidence, the fallacy substitutes examples from someone's personal experience. Arguments that rely heavily on anecdotal evidence tend to overlook the fact that one possibly isolated example can't stand alone as definitive proof of a greater premise. In other words, just because you prayed for somebody and they did not get healed does not mean that that was God's will. It does not mean that God doesn't heal, right? No more than if you pray for somebody and they do get healed, that is proof positive that God heals people. Because where should our proof lie? What did he say? We cannot be moved by what we see, hear, and feel. If we are, we are tossed to and fro. And that is the problem. Is that we get manipulated by all these facts. We get manipulated in our own mind. Because we're like, well, boy, I hope this works. I don't know. We have to be consistent in no matter where we are and where we stand with something. Whatever God said, he has been consistent with it from beginning to end. And so we looked at these three things, and there were very obvious answers that we could look at. What was the first thing with Jesus? Did he heal? Why did he leave some sick when he was there? Well, we broke that down. What was he doing? They were offended by him. But he healed everybody who allowed him to pray for them, right? Is there anybody he prayed for that wasn't healed? No. Is there evidence anywhere in Scripture of anybody that he prayed for that he didn't heal? No. Everybody was healed who came to Jesus in faith. Fair enough? We're just going to leave it at that for now. We'll dig into that later. But what about Timothy and Trophimus, Epaphroditus, all these guys? I began to show you guys. we got to look at these words and what they mean. One of the meanings of it is they were just tired. Timothy, drinking just water, which we know what, what can happen. There was issues. That's why they mixed it with the wine. But it, caused, it can cause issues. No different than today. I mean, there are easily explainable answers that are at least possible. And can we just chalk them up as a possibility? It's kind of like the abortion argument. It's that when you look at abortion and there are people saying, well, you know, it's a woman's right to choose. And you say, well, okay, that's fine, but that is a child. And then what do they come back at you with? Well, what about in rape and in incest? So, okay, fine. If I allow for the fact that that one, we can talk about that one later. How about the 99% of them, would we agree that the rest of that is bad? See, we try to find that one little caveat to justify our beliefs. And these are those caveats. We're like, oh, but what, but what about Timothy? Why would you not want to believe that God heals? What is such a big deal about that? There's something blocking there. Imagine, if you will, a group of individuals who are full of the Holy Spirit, born-again believers out there preaching the gospel day in and day out with every part of their life. And that when they go out into the world and they pray for sick people, they get healed. What would that do? It would do what it did in the book of Acts. It would grab some attention, wouldn't it? So what happens if we just begin to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? Now let's look at a couple more today. Okay, The first one, we've got to deal with Paul's thorn in the flesh. We've got to see what this is. Because apparently Paul had an eye disease. It is often missed, but I mean, I'm going to break this down today. As you guys know, I'm setting this up because I'm going to show you what it is. And I'm going to show you what it's not. I'm going to show you why it's stupid if you thought this, okay? You're not stupid. You've just been taught wrong. We're going to correct that today. So let's talk about this. Where do we get this idea about Paul's thorn in the flesh? And just in case you don't know, I love cow tipping. And these are sacred cows. And I love pushing them babies over. And then I love butchering them babies. And then I love throwing them babies on the smoker. And then we eat. 
full circle of life. God is good. Amen. All right. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Considering this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I most gladly, I most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that in the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now here's what he just said. He's got this thorn in the flesh. It was given to him. Why? Lest he be exalted above measure. And what was it? Well, we don't know exactly. But he does say that he would rather boast in his infirmities. Okay? What's an infirmity? Well, it appears to be a sickness. And then he says later that he takes pleasure in his infirmities. In other words, I take pleasure in what God has put upon me. In other words, sort of like my cross to bear, if you will, because it keeps me humble, but it allows me to let Christ's strength show through me. Was it Johnny Erickson Tata? I think that's the... She was a uh, paraplegic? Yeah, not... Yeah, but she would always use that. She's like, God has gifted me with this ability. I'm not letting this infirmity... Keep me from doing what God has called me to do. That's a great attitude to have. No question, right? It doesn't matter what's going on. We should not stop the work of the ministry, no matter what. And so here is Paul basically saying that same thing. So what is this? Well, infirmity literally does mean sickness. So we have to look at this and say, well, where do we get the idea where Paul maybe was sick? Well, let's look at Galatians chapter 4. In verse 12, it says, Brother, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. Have not, uh, you have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, there it is again, I preached the gospel to you at first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject. Now, what is the trial in his flesh? It doesn't mean he was ugly. Right? Something was going on that had come upon him. But what was it? You received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that, if possible, doubt your own eyes and given them to me. Now you know where they get the idea of this eye disease. Whatever it was, we don't know. We know that the Laodicean church had an ointment that they sold. It's what made them prosperous that dealt with some sort of eye disease. Some speculate that this is what it was. And a lot will speculate that Luke, the gospel writer, He was a doctor, and he was Paul's physician, and that's why he was following him around, and thus he would have been here helping to treat this. But these Galatians were so moved by Paul's sickness that to make him more effective, they would have plucked out their own eyes if that was a thing. Okay? It goes on in chapter 6, verse 11, see with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. Large letters, what does that mean? Well, if you normally write like this, but you can't see very good, you have to write bigger in order to see. You guys know what I'm talking about, some of you older folk. I've seen the size of the font on your phones. And it's, it's basically one or two letters per screen. That's why they make the remote controls that are this big with giant numbers on them. You remember the old landlines that, that look like this massive brick and had these giant push buttons on them? Yeah, you're pointing at me. 
I know it. Listen, if I take out my contacts, I don't know what color shirt you're wearing, okay? So I get it. But I'm just saying, like, it makes sense, doesn't it? So Paul is telling us at least a possibility of what this thorn in the flesh is, right? Yeah, you're saying no because you know me too well. It was a lot more fun before y'all got to know me so well when I'm setting you up. I'm going to have to work on my game a little. Well, let's begin to break this down. Because we should be able to answer what is going on in Galatians. And we should be able to answer what Paul's thorn is. Fair enough? So let's begin to look at this. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to go back. But we're going to start in verse 1. I always recommend don't ever read a Bible verse. Read a minimum 10 before, 10 after. Try to catch the context. Sometimes it takes more than that. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Paul, did I give you enough time to get there? Okay, I'll wait. No, I'm just kidding. He says I go too fast. I don't know what's wrong with him. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. Now, who was the man? Most speculate that it was Paul himself. Okay? And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, but God knows, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. There it is again. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. Now let's stop for a moment. What is he talking about? The word infirmities there, we often think of sickness, but you guys realize that it is anything that is going on in a person's life. Because in the term that is used in infirmities, it is often used in associations with beatings, scourgings, uh, imprisonment, hunger. Like this infirmity that is put upon him is done so or I shouldn't say done so, it doesn't necessarily refer to a physical sickness. It's the bearing of the, the punishment that he is taking for being a born-again believer. Makes sense? He's carrying the message. Now, why, why, why was this on him? Well, apparently, if this is referring to himself, he's had a revelation of God. He was taken up to the third heaven. He saw and heard things that he can't even express. There was something unique there well let's go on verse 7 and lest i should be exalted above measure do you realize that that word and connects what happened previously unless i should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations a thorn in the flesh was given to me a messenger of satan to buffet me lest i be exalted above measure there's twice that he said this concerning this thing I pleaded with the Lord three times that I, it might depart from me. And he said to me that my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecution and stresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, let's just look at this for a moment. And let's break down the sentence, shall we? Can you go back one? Maybe. There we go. 
I was about to start telling jokes. Good timing. All right. I might desire to boast. I will not be a fool. Uh, uh, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me, unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelation. The thorn in the flesh was given to me. Right? So we know he's got this thorn, but we don't. Tells us. A messenger of Satan to buffet me. Now, what is a messenger of Satan? Well, the word messenger can often be translated in an angel. Could be. I mean, possibly. But the thing is, does it say sickness? No, it tells us exactly what it is. We may not know what that is, but we know what it's not because it doesn't mention sickness. So why would this oftentimes be associated with some sort of ailment in his flesh? Well, I've said this before and I will say it again. When you come to the Scriptures believing something, an idea already in your mind, you will read that idea into it. But when you allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, that is how we come to a clear understanding. Because the writer here being Paul understood what? The Scriptures. And the Scriptures were written to whom? The Jews. So thus, any of the phraseologies that are used throughout the Old Testament should carry some water into the New. We saw this Wednesday night with Genesis chapter 9, didn't we? About the idiom, about seeing his father's nakedness. What that means, and more importantly, what it doesn't mean. Doesn't mean we've got all the pieces figured out, but you could, by allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture, you can see what it's talking about. In this case, the question should be, is a thorn in the flesh? What is it? We use it today. Do we not use that term today? Absolutely. You know where we use it sometimes? Our own kids. Oh, that kid's a thorn in the, my side. Or maybe you say that about my kids. I don't know. But let's begin to look at this. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Let's look at the places that that terminology is used and see if we can piece this together. We'll start in Numbers chapter 33, verse 54. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. Now, what is this talking about? Them going into the promised land, and what were they supposed to do? Drive out the inhabitants. Who were they supposed to leave behind? Nobody. What would be the result if they left somebody? They would be a thorn in their side. Who were these people that they were driving out? Well, the Amorites, the Canaanites, these were all people known, if we were to put them in one big broad term, as the enemies of God. Okay? Let's go to another one. Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 24. And there shall no longer be a pricking brier or a painful thorn for the house of Israel from among all who are around them who despise them. Then they shall know that I am the Lord God. Hmm. We see that term used again. Who is it referencing? People. Right? One more. Joshua chapter 23, verse 13. Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps to use and scourges on your side and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Now we see it used again. Not the exact wording, but you get the idea behind it. And who is it a reference to every single time? People. People. Now, let me ask you this question. We know Paul, when he was born again, was done so radically. Then Ananias was sent to him. 
to tell him all the things he must suffer for Christ's sake. Now, who did he suffer them by? The Jews, the Judaizers. What did Paul do? He would go into a town, he'd go to the synagogue, and he would spend sometimes a day, sometimes a week, sometimes several weeks there, every Sabbath, preaching. And what would happen oftentimes? They would drive him out of the land. They'd get him out of there. He caused so much trouble for these people. You guys see that? So you see how we allowed Scripture to interpret Scripture. So let me ask you this. If you were to look at and say, okay, a thorn in the flesh clearly is the enemies of God. Let's just put it that way because that's how it's used. Then what about the messenger of Satan part? Well, let me ask you this. Did Jesus not look at the Pharisees and say, you are of your father, the devil? You guys see how these all connect? Now, let's see this come into play. Acts chapter 14. Now, we're going to go through this entire thing, and I'm going to begin to break this down because we're going to answer a whole bunch of questions in this moment. Is everybody with me? Everybody caught up? Anybody behind? Okay. Acts chapter 14. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together in the synagogue of the Jews, which is what Paul always did, and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against their brethren. Now, who are the unbelieving Jews? Jews that did not believe his message. And what did they do? They poisoned the mind of the Gentiles. They stirred them up. That doesn't sound like such a big deal, but it's like riling up the crowd against them. Therefore, they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So as a result of this, they were there for a while. Signs and wonders are taking place, even though the Jews are riling up the crowd against him. Verse 4, but the multitude of the city was divided. Part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. So now we've got a split. Some believe the message of Paul and some don't. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding region, and they were preaching the gospel there. Now, let's pull up this map so I can kind of show you where they are. This is one of Paul's missionary journeys. Doesn't matter where he started, we're getting over to this area here. They start up here in Antioch, they go to Iconium. They're preached there for a while. Signs and wonders are taking place. Now they've finally got half the town all riled up, and they're coming to stone him. They're coming to abuse him. So what do they do? They head south. Head to Lystra and to Derby. Now, what do we know about these cities? This was part of modern Turkey, about 90 miles away from Pisidian, uh, Antioch, which is up there. Okay, so it took a little while to get there. It was a Roman-friendly city. It was set up by Claudius. Um, Iconium was on a major trade route. They would go from Syria to Ephesus on this route. I mean, it was a big commerce area. It was all about agriculture, all of that. These places worshipped Cybele, Hercules, Zeus. I mean, all of these gods, Apollo. I mean, all of these were here. And we know that there was this Jewish synagogue there. Now, what did it take to have a Jewish synagogue? Ten Jewish men could set up a synagogue. came from the time of Ezra. And so they, uh, we find all these inscriptions that Christianity becomes deeply rooted in this area. But the Jewish community was there, but it was predominantly Gentile. They think he was in Iconium for about six months. We don't know for sure. But Lystra here is about 20 miles south, thereabout, somewhere in that 
range. These maps are not to scale, FYI. Derby is about 60 miles east. Now, this matters here, and you'll see why in a moment. Let's go on to verse 8. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb. He had never walked. So he left where he was, goes to Lystra, finds a cripple. The man heard Paul speaking, observing him intently, and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped, and he walked. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Laconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. Now, this is interesting, because he heals this man, and what do they immediately go to? The gods have come among us. Now, why would they go there? Why is that their response to this supernatural thing happening? Well, the first thing that we know is that somebody who is sick can only be healed by the power of God. They believe that as well. They just had a different God. They would sacrifice to these gods. They would do all of these things. Jupiter, which was the Roman name, or Zeus, which was the Greek name, he was considered the father of the gods. He was tall. He was dignified. Mercury, which is the Roman name, and Hermes being the Greek, was the attendant. He was the messenger of Jupiter. And so they had all of these uh, temples erected there. They would worship. They would sacrifice. It was going on for a long time. But here's the thing. There is a legend that had taken place prior to Paul being there, years before Paul being there, about Zeus and Hermes. And according to the legend, it was a Phrygian hill country, and they would, Zeus and Hermes came down as mortals, and they were seeking a place to stay. And they had asked a thousand homes, knocked on doors, nobody took them in. But they find a little small cottage. It was made of straw and reeds and it had this elderly couple. Their name was Philemon and Bacchus. I don't know uh, how you say Bacchus, but that's how I say it. Uh, they welcomed them in. They set up a banquet. They sh- and, and they didn't have much, but they gave them everything they had. They fed them. And in appreciation, the gods transformed the cottage into the temple with a golden roof and marble columns. And so Philemon and Bacchus were appointed the priest and priestess of the temple, and they never died. Instead, they became an oak tree and a linden tree. And uh, for the inhospitable people, the gods destroyed everybody, did not show them any sort of respect and any sort of love, so to speak. Now, why do you think after this happened that the people responded the way they did, because this has happened before. We've seen this story. We won't screw up twice. Now you know the background to it. Let's go on. Verse 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? Now, why did they tear their clothes? It was a Jewish thing. It was a sign of grieving. They did not want worship for themselves. It did not end well for people that took worship from God. Ask Lucifer, he'll tell you. Okay? Man, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generation allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Now, what are we referencing to? We're going back to a Genesis 10 thing where he takes for himself in Genesis 11, the nation of Israel, but the rest of them, you're allowed to walk any way you want, but he wanted people to come to him. Nevertheless, 
He did not leave himself without witness, and that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. They're trying to talk sense into these people. Verse 19, watch what happens. Then the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there. And having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. Now let's stop for a minute because we've got to understand this. When we think of stoning, we think of the movies. Everybody grabs a little rock and they chuck it. That ends bad. That will hurt. But that's not how it went. Most of the time, they would push the person off of a cliff or off of a hill. They would grab these huge stones. And where do you think they aimed? Not at their feet. At their head. Now, the other thing is, so how many people were here? I don't know. But where did they come from? Antioch and Iconium. The two cities that he had been at before, he goes down to Lystra. They stoned him. Did they or did they not? Absolutely. And when they got done, they assumed him to be dead. Right? Now here's the thing. Did they ever make a mistake that Paul was dead? Did anybody was dead? These people dealt with, dealt with dead people all the time. What happened when grandma died? They had to prepare the body. They couldn't call the coroner. There was not a trade that took care of this. They dealt with dead bodies all the time. It's like the argument that Jesus didn't really die on the cross, they just thought he was dead, is nonsense. There's a difference between a dead body and a live body. But whatever happened, and maybe he didn't die, I don't know for sure, but at a minimum, he didn't die. They just thought he did, but they still stoned him, and at best, he truly died and was resurrected. It doesn't directly say that, so I leave that up in the air. Either way, Paul survives, and what's the first thing he does? They head to Derby, and I showed you where that was, a little bit away. Now, let's go on, verse 21, we'll come back to that. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commanded them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went to Italia. From there they sailed to Antioch where they had uh, been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported that God d had done with them and what he had opened the door of the faith of the Gentiles, so they stayed for a long time with the disciples. That's a mouthful. Why does this matter? We're trying to figure out what Paul's thorn in the flesh is. I showed you that what it's not. That the writings in Galatia have nothing to do with that, right? But this blows that theory out of the water. And here's why. Will you pull that map back up? You notice where he was. He was at Antioch. He goes to Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, And then he works his way back and, you know, goes home. Okay? But what you may not have noticed is the land of which these cities are. Galatia. When he rolled into these cities from here to here and back... What had just happened? He had been stoned. Where do they aim with those stones? At their head. Let's go read Galatians chapter 4 again. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at first 
Why did he end up in Derby? He got stoned in Lystra. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject. How do you think he looked after that? Not great. But you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. You think maybe he looked a little rough? Absolutely. What does that have to do with the thorn in the flesh? Not a thing. You see how we explain that? We have an answer for what was going on there. It came from the book of Acts. What did we use? Scripture to interpret Scripture. Can I say with 100% certainty that that is what he is referencing? I can't, but it certainly is at least plausible because he was in the area of Galatia. Who was the book of Galatians written to? The people in Galatia, right? You guys see how that works? This isn't hard, right? But we've just been taught wrong for so long that we'll just believe anything. We don't investigate. So that's something we got to do. So what was Paul's thorn in the flesh? Who stoned him? The Judaizers. Who were the ones that Jesus said he's going to have to suffer for? Who did he suffer by the hands of? The Judaizers. All of these people. You guys see how it all connects? Good. I'm going to give you a bonus one. You ready? We've got one more we've got to deal with. Because one of the arguments against God healing is it's, it's God's will. And we've got a story in Daniel chapter 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And this is where it always goes to. So let's read that. Daniel chapter 3, verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? And now if you are ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, and symphony, with all kinds of music, and you fall down to worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter, because if that's the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us up from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. You see, the story's going on, he builds this gold image, and everybody had to bow down, and everybody did except three guys, and guess what? They became a thorn in his flesh. They didn't like that. So he gave them another opportunity, and they refused. And the reason they refused is because you will have no other gods before me, nor will you worship them, right? So they are keeping the commandments of the law. And they look at Nebuchadnezzar and say, you know what? If you choose to do this, then God can rescue us. But if he doesn't, we won't bow down. And we often hear this preaching like, that's how we need to be. We don't know how God's going to respond, but if you're going to die, you die for the glory of the king. We give up our lives for Christ. It gives the idea that we can't know what God's going to do in response to that. But what if I told you the way we've been taught and the way we've read is completely wrong? So let me prove it to you. Daniel chapter 3 verse 1. And I promise this is it. Then we're going to eat. Some of you guys only came for the food today and that's all right. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits, his width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. 
And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurer, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, administrators, governors, counselors, treasurer, judges, magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up and heralded, or then a herald cried aloud, to you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that at the time that you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Now, let's pause for a moment. He says all nations and languages and all of that. Why do they say that? Because Nebuchadnezzar had been taking people for captive for a long time. The Jews were one of those nations. They are there inside the area of Babylon, and they're laying this out for them. Here's what you're going to do. When the music starts, you're going to bow down, and you're going to worship the king's image. But if you don't, it's just very simple, cut and dry, you're going to be cast in the fiery furnace. That's it. Any questions of what's going to take place? No. Pretty cut and dry, right? Let's go on. Verse 7. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre, and symphony with all kinds of music, uh, all the people, nations, and language fell down and worshipped the gold image with the king, which, that, which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Who fell? Everybody. It says none was left standing. Verse 8. Therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast in the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. He's reminding him. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Now, we learn something here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are higher-ups in the king's service. At one point, he had thought highly of them. And if you read before that, you'll know why. But, but at least here, we see that, all right? But now they're telling him, it's like, you said that this is what you're going to do and the result of not bowing down and worshiping, and now these guys who you put in charge are not bowing down and worshiping him. Verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now if you are ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made good. If you do not worship, you should be cast immediately in the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who would deliver you from my hands? Now he's giving them a second chance. Why do you think that is? He cares about these guys. There's something about them that he is like. Now, he's mad at them. There's going to be a price to pay, but he is giving them the opportunity to repent. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered, said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor we will worship the gold image which you have set up. Verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury. That means he's mad. Okay? You're married. You know what that's like. The expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that the heat of the furnace be seven times more than it was usually heated. 
He commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his armies to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, trousers, and their turbans, and their other garments, and were cast in the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound in the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Don't you like how it repeats the names over and over and over again? Then the king, verse 24, was astonished. He rose in haste and spoke, saying his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And he answered and said, king, it's true. Look, he said, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire. They are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. So who's in there with them? We believe it was Jesus. Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. Notice how his tune has changed. Come out and come here. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. And the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together. And they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected. And the smell of fire was not on them. If you've ever been camping, you know what a miracle that is by itself. Nebuchadnezzar, verse 28, spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made in ash heap, because there is no other God who can deliver like this. And the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So now we see the story unfold in its entirety. We see the beginning and we see the end. What was the outcome? The outcome is was we get to see what God's will was. The confusion was before whether we know what God's will would be. But in this case, we get to see it come out. And as a result, the king doubles down and says, anybody who speaks against their God will be cut up in pieces. Who is that towards? Well, it was towards all those people that came and tattled on them. Because now there is freedom to worship Yahweh, because only He could deliver like this. So now we see the beginning, and we see the end. we got to go back to the middle, because the question is, and where this is used, is when it comes to praying for healing, we don't know what God's will is. It's whatever His will will be, will be done. And in this case, they did not know if God would rescue them, except that's not what it says. Let's look at this slowly. Let's go back to verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the commandment to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made good, but if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who would deliver you from my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to, this, to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you that we 
will do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Now, I've told you, how do we answer these questions? We allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. So what verse should we turn to to solve this problem? We should turn to this verse, because all you have to do is do fourth grade grammar on sentence structure. You ready? This is a miracle of God right here, because I have no business teaching sentence structure. The response, if that is the case, what are they referencing? You throwing us in the fiery furnace. If you choose to do this, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fire, uh, the fiery furnace, and He will deliver us. Is there any doubt in their mind? No. But if not, if not to what? Not if not God saves us. If you choose not to throw us in the fire, let it be known to you, we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image. Here's the thing and how we know that's true. If he chose to throw them in the fire and God doesn't rescue them, there's no way they can worship the gold image because they're dead. You see how obvious that is? Do you see how easily we miss the obvious? Because how do we read this? How we've always heard it taught. We've got to go back to the subject. I think that's right. That's how you say that. The subject is the fiery furnace. Not what God's going to do. Because God was going to save them no matter what the king did. Because why? They were obedient to the commands of God. They knew their rightful place. Here, we see that no matter what the king does, they will not bow down and worship. You guys see the difference? Wasn't that fun? We should throw a cow on that fiery furnace, don't you think? You see, guys, there's a lot of these kind of things. We're always looking for some reason to say, well, God didn't or doesn't or whatever. How about we just go with what he said and we leave it at that? There are answers to these questions, but we've got to be good students and go through and dig these out. You guys with me? That's good, right? We're learning something? Good. Now we're going to do the not fun part. We're going to kick Mason out of here. We're going to pray for him and your wife if, if she'd like to join us, you know. I mean, we... We've been praying for her since they've been married because it's Mason, you know. But we want to send them out. They're getting ready to go into exciting new adventures, heading down to Texas, go to work for a company down there. It's got a new job, so they're going to be packing up. So I'd ask you guys to come up, and then anybody that wants to come up and, and pray with me, we're going to send them out right. It's been a lot of fun having them here and, and whatnot. We're going to miss them when they go because nobody tells bad jokes like Mason. But 